0: But I'd like us, for the following weeks, including this morning, to continue reading and rehearsing these words of the Lord's Prayer as Jesus calls us to pray in this particular manner, in this particular way. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil this is God's holy inspired and inerrant word let us go before the throne of grace and ask that the spirit would help us to understand these things our gracious God and heavenly father uh, your son has instructed us to come before you even today to pray our father in heaven We pray that You would give us the grace to slow down and consider what these words mean, what they entail for us, and our relationship to You, the good news that is found through the ministry of Your Son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I remember when I was in high school, I had several uh, friends, uh, believe it or not, uh, I had several friends who would uh, come over several times a week and uh, would hang out. And most uh, of my friends, like normal people, would knock on the door before they entered. But not my buddy, Zach Johnson. This is what Zach would do anytime he showed up to my place, whether uh, expected or unexpected, he would simply walk right on in. It drove my dad up the wall. I remember my dad saying, what is he doing? He doesn't own this place. He's not family. He needs to learn how to knock. I remember, fast forward a a, a decade later, I was teaching at a boarding school in Jacksonville, Florida. I just moved into my very first apartment there on campus, and my apartment, the front door to my apartment, uh, was along a row of all these other dorms, including some of the other apartments being the dorms to the other dorm parents. And I I invited some friends over for us to have a celebratory kind of move-in thing Uh, And one of my buddies showed up, and he got his directions mixed up, and he walked into the wrong apartment. He just kind of walked into somebody else's uh, apartment, and there was another dorm parent with his family watching TV. And needless to say, that particular dorm parent, who I had uh, not even met yet, was furious. He jumped up off of the couch and started yelling at my buddy, saying, do you just naturally barge into other people's homes? Rightfully, Uh, So my buddy was embarrassed, even though it was not his fault. uh, He was still mortified at the response that this father gave. But could you, you know, standing in the, the, the shoes of the father, not knowing who this is, this stranger, an adult who just walks into your home, would you not also be angry Well, I think at root we see the same problem that I just exemplified to you in um, both situations. What what right do we have to enter another man's palace, as it were? Who are we to presume for me, even as your pastor, just to, to walk into your house unannounced or uninvited? There is what we might call a restricted access that we have when we are outside of the family of another home. Even if we're invited to another's house for dinner, it doesn't mean we have the uh, authority uh, or uh, even invitation to traipse into the master bedroom. We all know the bounds. We all know the limits. Instinctively, we get that here on the earthly plane. But how oblivious we are as to how this translates into the heavenly courts. What right do we have to presume into the holy place? To the heavenly courts, into the inner sanctum where the Lord sits enthroned on high, were we not members of the family of God? This is not a right that's held out to anyone, but even as we confess our faith this morning, this is a privilege that is extended to those who have been adopted into God's heavenly family. Our passage this morning here tells us this as our King and Savior teaches us how we are to pray, (coughs) excuse me, the manner that we are to adopt in our prayers. These opening words bring into view a wonderful truth that we have been adopted into God's family. Because we've been adopted into his family, we get to call him our Father. Because of this, we have been granted unrestricted access to the throne of grace. There's three things I'd like us to consider in these brief opening words, our Father in heaven. First, I would like us to consider uh, the great and wonderful truth that God is our uh, Father. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the fact that God is our Father. And then finally, the fact that God is our Father in heaven. So, Father, our Father and in heaven. Those are the three things I'd like us to consider. I remember um, just another anecdote this morning. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I, I delivered pizzas for Pizza Hut. It was a fun job. I didn't really have to interact with many people. I went into the restaurant, picked up the pizzas, went and dropped off the pizzas. If anybody was upset, I'd say, hey, call the manager. I could bring you a free pizza. It was, it was easy. I got to drive around and listen to country music all night long. It couldn't have been better. But sometimes business was slow, and I'd show back up to the restaurant, and I would spend my time either helping make pizzas or work back in the kitchen washing dishes. And one of my coworkers' names, he was a high schooler by the name of John. He was a nice kid. and one night we were talking about the Christian faith. He himself was not a believer. And he said to me, in talking about God, he says, well, I think God goes by many names. It doesn't matter which one you use, the name is not important anyway. So I shook my head, I said, that's an interesting point you make, Jim. He kind of looked at me, kind of half-cock-eyed, kept talking about how names don't matter, and I said, sure thing, whatever you say, Billy. Every time he would say something along those lines, I would repeat and say, Something other than what his actual name was, John. And finally, he burst out at me and he says, Why do you keep calling me something other than my name? I said, so I think it's funny. I thought you said names don't matter. What is it that's in a name? What is it when we say that names aren't important? And what is it when we consider the fact that Christ is calling us to a call upon God as Father? Here in the opening form of this prayer, we're already told several, th- several things about the one to whom we are approaching. He is not a God that goes by any other name. We are not called to pray to Baal. We are not called to pray to Zeus or to Odin or to Allah. When we pray, we are addressing neither saints nor angels nor Mary nor even our dearly departed sweet Aunt Betty. When we pray, we are called to call upon our Father in heaven. We are calling upon only one God, the one true and living God who has revealed himself, not his mother, not his boyfriend, not his buddy, but his father. And so this tells us that this one God that we serve is not an impersonal God. He is not an absentee landlord, or uh, as you would hear in the 17th or 18th century, the master watchmaker who has made the world functioning as a perfect clock, and now he's gone off Uh, somewhere else, and has no concern for the daily affairs of men. Our Savior's opening instructions tell us the nature of who this God is. How interesting it is that Jesus did not tell us to address the Father as the uncreated or the unbegotten, though God has always been and though no one has ever given birth to the father himself this is how the arians in the 4th century addressed their deity jesus did not even tell us that we were to call upon god as your majesty though god himself is majestic and resplendent in his holiness now he tells us when you pray you're to call upon him as our father this is highly personal We are not dealing with an impersonal force as in Star Wars. We are not dealing with an aloof landlord. Rather, we are addressing one who loves, one who protects, and one who disciplines his own. Of course, we might ask, well, who is God the Father of? Can anyone call upon God as Father I think in one sense it is proper to say that God is the father of all. You see this in two places in Scripture. In Acts chapter 17, Paul cites the pagan writer Epimenides who says that we are all God's offspring. Malachi chapter 2, the prophet says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created all of us? In one sense, you can talk about God as father of all creation. Yet here, in a special sense, this is restricted to the redeemed. Not everyone is able to call upon God as Father in the sense that Jesus means here. Not in the sense in the way in which Christ calls his disciples to do so. Think of Jesus' own disputation with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. What is it that Jesus says to the Pharisees? He says, you're you're of your father the devil. The God of Israel is not your, your father. Your father's the father of lies. Of course, they're highly offended. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. Yet you are of your father, the devil, and therefore your will is to do your father's desires. Likewise, Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, says that we were by nature children of wrath. Destined for destruction, just like the rest of mankind. I think that's the sense that what Jesus is getting at in John 8 and what Paul is getting at, I believe, in Ephesians 2 is along the same trajectory of what Jesus is getting at here. In this special sense, not everyone is able to call God Father. This is a great privilege It's not something that we have by nature. It is something that we have as a great benefit of redemption that is found through Christ. Something has happened. Something has changed in the course of human events. God, out of His superabundant, overflowing mercy, has adopted us as His own. So that through faith in Christ, Christ who is the only begotten Son of God, From before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, that through the death of the Son of God, by nature, the Father has now made us sons and daughters of God by grace. As part of the great and glorious exchange, the everlasting, eternally begotten Son of God dies in our place, that we might be received as sons of God by grace. It's through faith, Paul says to the church of Galatia, that we have become sons of God, that we have been adopted into a new family. So when Christ here instructs us to call upon God as our Father, He is bringing into view this newfound relationship that we have with God through the work of Christ. Something that is only hinted at in the Old Testament about calling upon God as Father. Only in a few places you see hints of it. But here, with great striking clarity, Jesus speaks with such authority that now the time has come for us to call upon God as our Father because the redemption has come. What is it that Jesus says upon His ascension? I now ascend to my Father and to your Father. It's a work that is accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. What significance it is to now call upon God, not simply as Master, or as the Majestic One, though God is the Master of all, though He is the Majestic One, though He is the Holy One of Israel. No, He calls us to call Him by a personal name to call upon Him as Father. Again, thinking about these tremendous ramifications. You think of a slave's relationship to his master in the ancient world, or even in our present day, uh, an employee's relationship with his boss. That relationship is contingent upon merit. That relationship is contingent upon the employee's ability to fulfill his delegated task. And if you work for Pizza Hut and you're not delivering pizzas, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get fired. But it's different when it comes to the relationship of a father with his son. It's not contingent upon merit. There's something stronger that undergirds it. There's something that binds the father to his son and the son to his father, the son continues to remain the son even when he is in the doghouse with his parents. Nothing changes that. And if I could be even more pointed in earthly terms, a biological father may never have wanted to have children. But when it comes to adopting children, he only does so precisely because he wants them. It is as if he were to say, out of all the orphans in this world, I chose you. I set my affection on you. And so when we consider the doctrine of adoption, we need to remember these things. We are not children of God by nature. Yet out of his mercy, God set his affection and sights on us and said, I choose you. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's not on the basis of your own performance, your own moral do-goodery, but on my own everlasting affection for you. I am calling you out of darkness. I have delivered you from the dominion of your tyrannical former family. And I'm bringing and calling you into a new family. And now you are to call me Papa. And so now he beckons us to draw near and enter the heavenly sanctum, the Holy of Holies. It's not a right that we have by birth. It is a privilege we have by virtue of our adoption. When we call upon God as our Father, it reminds us that we have a firm and certain privilege that cannot be revoked. For if through Christ we are to call upon God as Father, then the corollary is this, that He welcomes us as His sons. That's why we always talk about, and that's why we confess with our faith uh, together this morning, that attending our adoption is the great privilege of prayer. You know, a few years ago, was, uh, it made uh, it became kind of an overnight media sensation, a real... Um, a cute interview that initially didn't begin as cute. It was just kind of a normal BBC interview where a, a particular political science professor was uh, speaking with the BBC about uh, relations between and the growing tensions that were escalating between North and South Korea. And this particular political science professor is sitting at home kind of Skyping in with this BBC news reporter talking about these things. And yet as he's in the middle of talking, you see the door behind him swing open and one of his children just comes marching right on in. Marches right up to his side, and you can see just kind of the look of embarrassment as he's trying to have this very serious conversation on international television, and he's kind of trying to keep his his child, you know, off to the back. But before he can even get that one under wraps, another kid comes rolling through on a stroller. And then you see the mom right behind, trying to tackle both of them and drag them both behind. It was really funny, and then there were these subsequent interviews in the coming days with that particular professor again, because everybody just loved it and thought it was so funny. Even though the professor is clearly embarrassed and apologetic over the matter, it it's very heartwarming to watch, but it, it's an even greater truth to know that our Father in Heaven is not embarrassed by us when we, when we enter the throne of grace. He's not too busy to hear our prayers The great uh, Princeton theologian Charles Hodge had six children, and his study was in his house, and uh, he was was well known for having what he called an open-door policy. In his study, he kept the door open, and regardless of what time of day it was, whether or not he was in a meeting or in his studies, his children had full access to barge in and interrupt whatever was going on. And so they were known to be running through the house and sometimes running in and through his study at times, but he would never turn them away. What a picture that is of our Heavenly Father uh, who never turns us away. We have full, unfettered access to the throne of grace. If God has given up His Son for us, how would He not graciously give us all these other things? God is never too busy for us. This is the great confidence we have when Christ calls upon us to call upon God as our Father. These are the things that we are called to dwell upon and meditate on. I'm not making this up. This is the very point of Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have such a great high priest who has already passed through the heavens, the one who has opened up the door, who has made the open-door policy, as it were, who has blazed the trail. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession and let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help when, when time of need. Whenever that comes, You have a Father in heaven who is not too busy for you. That we could call upon God as our Father invites us to come with a childlike trust in response. That we ought not to act like the orphan Oliver Twist as he approaches one of the workhouse employees saying, Please, sir, can I have some more? Uncertain as if he is able to get another bowl of slop. No, rather, we as hungry children before a doting father can come with confidence and full assurance, knowing full well that our Papa, our Father in heaven, will provide us with all that we ever need. And it's not just me, it's not just my Father. You know what Jesus says here? When you pray, you're to pray, our Father. See, prayer is not simply a private affair. Even in our own private prayer closet, Christ calls us to pray like this. Why is this the case? Why does he call us to always remember that we are calling upon him as our Father? I think first it's a wonderful reminder of the truth already revealed in the Psalms that God makes a home for the lonely, and he settles the solitary into a family. Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. There is no place for a just me and my Bible Christianity in this prayer. It begins with a corporate accent to its tone. As it reminds us that God is not a mystical vending machine given to cater to our every whim and hankering. But rather our prayers are intended not just for our needs alone, but also for our brothers and sisters in the family of God in the local church and in the church throughout the world. See, when we call upon God as our Father, these opening words set forth before us both the vertical and horizontal elements. We call upon God as our Father, noting this newfound relationship we have with God as we've been received into His family. But we don't simply call Him my Father. We now call Him our Father, and it sets us side by side with all the other saints throughout the world who call upon this same God As father. Brothers and sisters who come from every race and nation, irrespective of tribe, tax bracket, social status, or gender, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and by faith are received into a new family. He sets the solitary into homes. This is why the the language of the church family is so replete throughout the New Testament. We see here that the model prayer that our Savior gives us is itself a corporate prayer. Even when prayed in private, we are not praying alone. We ought never to think in isolation any longer. But even in our private prayer time, we are to think in terms of the broader family into which we have been set. I think this should encourage us to pray more often together, be it as a couple, be it as a family, be it in small groups, be it as a church. We are called to pray together. We're not in exclusion from isolation. Jesus has already talked about in the previous weeks, we've looked at how Jesus talks about going into our private prayer closet and praying secretly before the Father. It's not one to the exclusion of the other, it's both and. We pray privately and we pray together corporately. And yet in this opening address, even as we are told of the great love our Father has for us, we are given given an intimate portrait of a loving God who is not only willing to save, but He is also able to save. What do I mean by that well you know this that here when we call upon God as our father in heaven if calling upon God as father denotes that newfound intimacy that we have with him then the place of his dwelling indicates the authority that he holds in his ability to answer those prayers I think it would be one thing to have a closet deity or family idol who would simply pat you on the shoulder and say, there, there now, it's all going to be okay, I wish I could do more, but I just can't, but you have my sympathies. To have a willing but impotent deity is pretty useless. Useless. There's no benefit in clinging to an affable yet powerless bearded man in the sky. And yet when we pray our Father in heaven, we are reminded that we do not serve a weak deity. What is it that the Psalms teach us? God sits enthroned in the heavens over the flood. Psalm 29, 10. Reminding us that though the storms of life might rage fast, And with tremendous fury, that even as we are in the midst of such a powerful tempest and the hurricane, we do not have to think that God is unable to withstand the power of the squall. God is not only willing to save us from the storm, but he is able because he sits enthroned above it. The storms may rage on earth, but God dwells in heaven. And he remains on his throne, seated over the storm, indicating his strength and his power. That he is not simply one who is willing to save, he is one who is actually able as well. How important it is to have both of those. It would be awful to have a God who is able but not willing, but also awful to have a God who is willing but not able. And yet the book of Hebrews tells us that we have a God who is both willing and able to save to the uttermost. This is not to say that God is confined to heaven. When it says that God dwells in the heavens, you think of 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon says the heavens can't even contain you. Jesus himself has already said that your Father who dwells in heaven is the same Father who is with you in the secret place as you pray in private. God is not confined to heaven as if He did not have time for your petty cries, concerns, or cares. No, He dwells with you. The High and Lofty One who dwells in heaven resides with you in the secret place as well. Though fully transcendent, He is also fully imminent. The High and Lofty One is still fully personal and calls upon us to love Him and call upon Him as our Father who loves us and cares, who protects us and defends us. You see, you have a Father in heaven full of tender compassion, eager to hear your cries, one who is full of power and who is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to him through Christ because we have a faithful high priest who has granted us that open door access by his ascension into heaven. And now as our Savior ever lives above to make intercession for us, God hears the prayers of His only begotten Son and the Father never denies His Son, His Son's request. And His Son continues to pray for us in heaven. And His Son has poured out His Spirit here on earth so even when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, we have the Spirit given to us who groans with us and labors with us We have a threefold witness. The Father who has called upon us to call him our Father and draw near. The Son who ever lives above to make intercession for us and the Spirit poured out into our hearts to bear with us in the midst of trial and strength, to give us comfort in the midst of deep affliction. What greater comfort could we have in heaven or on earth than the fact that Father, Son, and Spirit is with us and for us and because of Christ will not be against us so that we could come before him with full and open confidence. What assurance these opening words give to us to know the protection, the love, and even the discipline of our Father above, who protects us from all abuse and harm, who will not even allow a hair to fall from our head apart from his gracious will, who loves us as a father loves his children. Consider your own love for your own children, and yet how much greater God's love is for his own adopted son's. daughters, for He is love itself, and so possesses a love that can neither increase nor diminish, diminish, a love that can neither wax nor wane, a love that is never able to falter or fail or ever to grow cold, or even to grow hotter than it already is. God can never love you more than He already does, because He is love itself, and He is through His Son for you. And he looks upon you, dearly beloved, the redeemed bride of Christ, and he says to the prophet Isaiah, you are precious in my sight. Even in his discipline, he loves us. Even as we are told in his displeasure and chastisement, he corrects us, and yet it is grounded in the fact that he has called us his sons. Even his displeasure is grounded in his love for us. So great is his love for us. That in his concern for our well being, he has stooped to make us holy, so that in being made holy, we will be made happy forevermore. What a privilege it is to know that God has a name, and his son calls us to join him in calling upon that name, our Father in heaven. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the great and wonderful truth of adoption. We ask that. You would cause us to, to look to heaven and to see that You are the perfect Father, even among those who, who, who have had imperfect or even horrendous fathers, that You are the Father that outshines even the best fathers here on earth. And You've called us to draw near to Your courts and to cling to You in childlike faith. We ask that you would give us the faith to do so. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.